Well, if you're here this morning, you know where you need to open your Bibles up to. Open up to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. As you recall, this morning we studied together the first section of that 11th chapter, dealing with God's divine order and the head covering, which is always a I shouldn't say always, but is often a a place avoided in Scripture because there seems to be a lot of confusion about what that means and especially the application for us today. And so, if you weren't here this morning and would like a copy of that lesson, let me know and I can get you a copy and you can get caught up there in the study. But we're going to look at the second half of the chapter this evening, which is Admittedly, a little easier to understand, and a portion of the chapter that we refer to a little more often than we do the first half. But in all things, we always want to, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, to give attention to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. That is what we are striving to do and have striven to do. Is that a word? Striven? Striven. There you go. Uh, throughout the day today. We're going to continue to do that this evening as we consider this topic of honoring our head. As we think about the overall theme of this 11th chapter, we can see that throughout the chapter, this is really the the point that Paul is stressing, whether in the context of uh, the spiritual gifts of prophecy, as he talks about there in the first half, or in relation to the Lord's Supper, as he begins to discuss in the second half, which we're going to again focus on this evening. So, as we did this morning, we're going to basically allow the text to be our outline, and we'll make some comments and some side points as we go through. But we'll pick up where we had left off this morning. We read through the first 16 verses, and we'll pick up in verse 17. So, after he has concluded what he has to say about the headship of God to Christ and the Godhead to man and then within mankind, man as the head of the woman, uh, he shifts his attention to some things that were happening within the context of the assembly of the church. And so verse 17, he says, In giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. You go back through the earlier portion of the letter and uh, that he has written here, and you see all kinds of problems that he was addressing with the Corinthians. So, understanding all of that, we can understand why he would Not be surprised, I guess we could say, that these things are happening in relation to their so-called observance of this memorial. Verse 19, he says, There must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You can imagine them reading this and them thinking, Now, what do you mean? Because that's, that's exactly what we are intending to do. But he's saying, no, that's not what you're doing. Well, why is that? 
Well, he explains why what they were actually practicing was not the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 21, in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, I do not praise you. So one of the problems that they had in relation to this observance was that they were turning it into a meal. And Paul's explaining, look, if you want to have a meal, you can go to your houses and do that. But when you come together as the church to observe this this memorial supper, this is something distinct. This is something separate from a, a regular meal. And they were taking it to the point where some of them were just eating till they were drunk, or we might say just full, and then others weren't getting enough, and it was just this, uh, this source of contention and division amongst themselves. So not only were they failing to actually observe and remember the Lord's death in what they were doing, but they were even taking it to an extreme where they were causing divisions amongst themselves. So he says, I will not praise you, in regard to the things that you're doing. Now, the next few verses are the ones that we often reference. As we think about this 11th chapter, this is probably the most quoted section of it. Oftentimes, as we ourselves are partaking of the Lord's Supper, whoever is leading our minds in that observance will typically refer to this passage because it's a very succinct uh, summary of what it's all about. Paul is trying to remind them of the purpose of these things. He says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So you think back to verse 1. We had spent some time talking about verse 1 this morning, where he says, imitate me in as much as I imitate Christ. And so he's reminding them again, look, the things that I've delivered to you in regards to this observance, I got those things from the Lord. So this is not my own ideas. And so again, he's he's always making sure that his audience is aware that these are not his ideas. This is not his wisdom, but this is what he has received from God. So I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, obviously we know that All but John's gospel recount the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I suppose it would do us well to at least notice one of those. As we go back, let's look at Luke's account in Luke chapter 22. Turn there with me. So Luke's account starts in verse 14 of the 
22nd chapter there, and we'll read down through verse 20. It says there, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I would no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so likewise, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And he goes on and, of course, talks about how his betrayer is is soon to betray him and so forth. So Paul, more or less word for word, reminds the Corinthians of what Jesus had originally instituted with this unleavened bread and this fruit of the vine. So we understand, of course, as we seek to make application to ourselves, that when we partake of this bread and fruit of the vine on the first day of the week, that we don't assemble and partake of those things in an attempt to fill our stomachs because we're hungry or because we're thirsty. Uh, The partaking of these emblems is specifically, as is explained here, for us to pause and remember the body and blood of Christ. I know when I was younger, I would often struggle in my thoughts during the Lord's Supper. I would sit there and think, what am I supposed to think about? I knew kind of generally what the idea was, but sometimes I would have a hard time focusing specifically on one certain thing. So if you have one of the uh, bulletins there, and of course we have the outlines of the lessons on the bulletin on the back side of the sheet, it might be something to keep handy because I kind of went through and outlined just a number of specific things we can think about, things we can remember in relation to our Lord and his suffering, his sacrifice for us, uh, especially as we're partaking of this particular memorial. You know, I've often made the point that the sacrifice of Jesus began not in the garden, Uh, or as he was led up the hill to be crucified, or when he was being scourged, or any of those things, it actually began when he first left heaven. And that in and of itself was a sacrifice. Uh, John 1.1, of course, reminds us that in the beginning, Jesus was there with God. And he had part in the creation of all things, as it goes on to explain. But he left all of that to come to this earth. There's a song in our hymn books that we sing every so often out of the ivory palaces. And the whole concept of that song, the the idea behind that song is to help us grasp that, that point. That Jesus left all the riches of heaven to, in essence, be made poor as he came to this earth to live in service to you and I, ultimately through his death. We can think about his lowly birth. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 recounts those events and how ultimately, because there was no room at the end for Mary and Joseph, that he was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for the animals. Very lowly circumstances for the birth of the king of kings. And really, in essence, kind of foreshadowing the 
purpose of his life here was come, uh, he came to serve. We think about just his general manner of life while he was here. It was a very humble life. Uh, He makes a comment in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, how that foxes have their holes or their dens, birds of the air, they have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have really a, a place that he called home, at least once he got older, especially as he began his ministry. Didn't have any real earthly possessions, even though he could have had all of those things. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 makes the point there that through his poverty, we can be rich. He became poor, again, the concept there, so that we might enjoy all the riches of heaven. Kind of fast forwarding a little, we think about his sweat as blood in the garden there. Luke records that detail for us in Luke 22 and verse 44. He was so emotional and distraught, sorrowful even to the point of death, worried that perhaps his body might fail him before he made it all the way to the cross to accomplish his mission, praying to the Father for strength. We can think about that kiss of betrayal. One of his most trusted friends, one of his very own disciples, one of the twelve that he'd called to be closest to him, betrayed him into the hands of his enemies. Think about his loneliness as the detail is recorded in Matthew 26 and verse 56 that after he was betrayed, all the disciples forsook him and fled. So he didn't have any earthly comfort of a loved one while he was going through all that he went through. We can think about how there when he was before the Sanhedrin that the Servants of the high priest spat on him. They beat him. They commanded him to prophesy. Remember, they blindfolded him and hit him in the head and said, well, prophesy, tell us which one of us, which, which one of us struck you and things of this nature just to mock him. We can think about once he was delivered into the hands of Pilate. Pilate, of course, was sympathetic and recognized that he was an innocent man and he'd done nothing deserving of death and he tried time and time again to persuade the Jews to to reason, but they would not have it. Pilate even went so far as to offer them a choice. He said, look, I can release this terrible, you know, the worst of the worst that I have in the prison here, this man named Barabbas, he's a murderer, led this rebellion and did all kinds of terrible things Why don't you pick which one you want? I can release this terrible person or you can have Jesus be set free. And they, of course, chose the murderer. They chose Barabbas instead of Christ. And he said, well, what then shall I do with with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, crucify him. Before he was crucified, we know that Pilate commanded that he be scourged, which was a terrible ordeal in and of itself. Uh, The flagellum, which was the whip, with various strands, leather strands coming off. Uh, Each of those strands at the end would have a piece of bone or metal or some kind of sharp object tied there so that when it struck the person's back, it would not only whip them, but it would rip the flesh as well. So he endured all of that. He endured, as he had with the Jewish officials and their mocking, he likewise endured the mocking of the Roman guards. 
They fashioned a crown of thorns and put that on his head and, of course, made this purple robe to mock him as a king. They bowed to him, bowed the knee, of course, sarcastically. We can think about those shouts of crucify him from the crowds as they were refusing to repent of their decision to see him put to death. The mocking as he was being led through all of these things, even when he was there on the cross, people would walk by and and mock him. If you really are the son of God, why don't you come down from this cross, etc.? Of course, he had to carry his cross up the hill to the place of the skull. At one point, he had to have help. Remember, Simon was um, more or less drafted by the the Roman guards to assist him in carrying his cross because he was so weak at that point that he, he couldn't do it on his own. The crucifixion itself, of course, was a terrible thing. Think about those nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. Think about the rough wood that would have been rubbing against his back, which had been torn open from that scourging. The thirst that he experienced, which is detailed there in John 19 and verse 28, as all the fluid in his body was being poured out, especially his blood. He was numbered with transgressors. He had a thief on each side of him as he hung there, as if he had done some terrible crime. And he hung there for six hours. Sometimes we forget that detail. Mark and Matthew both record that it was six hours that he hung suspended between heaven and earth. And ultimately he gave up his spirit after explaining or expressing that it was finished. He had accomplished his mission, fulfilled everything that he came to fulfill. These are examples of what we are to remember when we partake of this fruit of the vine and this unleavened bread. This is the purpose that Jesus had in mind when he instituted these things. It's not pleasant to think about any of them, is it? But nonetheless, it's very important that we remember them. Because it is by remembering what Jesus has done that we are reminded of our own sinfulness, of our own dependency upon that sacrifice, how we would be lost eternally without it. And it keeps us driven and motivated as we ought to be. Now, another portion of the text that I'd like to focus on specifically there, uh, beyond just the fact that, of course, we're to remember these things, He says there in verse 26 again that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, he says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so not only are we proclaiming that we believe in the sacrifice of Christ, but in essence we are also proclaiming our belief that he rose again and that he is coming back. We observe this until he returns. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, we read the details of when he first ascended back to the Father. The text there says that when he had spoken these things while they watched, 
He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So he will return in the clouds. And there are several passages, of course, we could notice that detail that. You could think about 1 Thessalonians, the end of the chapter there, and uh, the fourth chapter, and even into chapter 5. Paul talks at some length about uh, Jesus' return and the details of that. I'd like us to notice what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. Here, talking about the day of the Lord, he says, It will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Verse 13, he continues and says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, notice, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. So, as Peter writes concerning all this destruction and how everything that we we know and experience physically is going to be burned up, that thought kind of in and of itself is, well, that seems scary, right? But he's saying we're looking forward to these things. Because we know what comes next for the faithful. We know that when Jesus comes back, even though this physical universe will be done away with, there is a spiritual home that awaits the faithful. So we proclaim his death until he comes. Now, as we continue into verse 27 of our main text there in chapter 11, uh, he further begins to explain both the importance of observing this correctly and some other details that we need to keep in mind. So verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So what does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? Well, if you pay attention there, you see that he explains the answer to that, doesn't he? The unworthy manner is the same as not discerning the Lord's body. What does that mean? We had some fun with that this morning in our Bible class. We had all these words that Dave kept looking up in his dictionary for us. Well, what's the word discern mean? Well, it's important that we understand that, right? Because if we want to partake of the memorial feast in a way that's worthy, it means we have to discern the Lord's body. Well, the word discern is defined as distinguishing mentally, recognizing as distinct or different. It can refer to discrimination, which oftentimes we think about that word in a negative context, but Uh, It can also mean to just basically identify something as distinct or special. And certainly as we think about Jesus, we think about his body and his blood, they are distinct and 
unique because unlike you and I, he was without sin. And so when we partake of these things, as long as we are recognizing what it is they are causing us to remember and why we're to remember them, then we can partake in a way that is worthy, in a way that is pleasing to God. But if we take of these emblems and we do it in a flippant way or our minds are thinking about what we're going to do later that afternoon or just, you know, any number of things that we could fill in the blank there, then that in essence is not discerning and God is not going to be pleased with us. And so verse 30 says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. In other words, because there are so many of you that are partaking of this feast in an unworthy way, and the weakness and the sickness and the sleeping that he's talking about here is not physically, he's talking about spiritually. He says you're spiritually falling apart, in essence, because you're not doing this the right way. You're sinning. He says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What does he mean by that? Well, he just simply means if you would stop and think about what you're doing and analyze it in relation to the word of God and say, am I really doing what I need to be doing and in the right way? Well, then I wouldn't need to be writing this letter to you. It's kind of, in essence, what Paul is saying. But when you are judged, he says, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The purpose of everything Paul was writing to them was not just to tell them how silly and stupid they were for doing all these things wrong. It was to enlighten them so so as to lead them to correction. And he explains that. You get into the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7 specifically, and he talks about that. He talks about how he was sorry that he hurt their feelings in essence, but he was glad that they had been led to repentance. So verse 33 says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is a communion, in other words. We, we do this together. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you guys getting together and having a, a meal. There's nothing wrong with being hungry in and of itself, but you do that in your homes. You do that someplace else. When you come here together and observe these emblems, this is for a very specific purpose, a very serious purpose. So he says, the rest I will set in order when I come. So kind of, I guess, to summarize what we've looked at this evening, we've seen that the Lord's Supper, of course, is not a common meal, that their common meals were to be observed in their own homes. And likewise for us today, that same instruction would apply. This is a memorial of our Savior's death. To partake in a worthy manner is to properly discern our head, who is Christ. You see how all this ties into that same central theme, this idea of honoring our head. It's consistent throughout the whole chapter. And again, disregarding these instructions leads one into judgment and will ultimately lead one to spiritual death. So these are very serious things that we need to understand. I hope that as we've studied together over the course of the day, and we've looked at this 11th chapter in its totality, that we don't have to be scared of this chapter anymore, that we can read through this and understand it, and that we can help other people understand it. As with any topic in the Word of God, if we will devote the appropriate amount of time and energy 
And to looking into these things, we can understand. God has not given us anything that is beyond our ability to comprehend. And so sometimes we have to put a little more effort into things, but uh, he has recorded all these things for a reason. He wants us to understand them and to know them and to apply them in our lives. So I hope that the study has been beneficial to us all to that end. We'll conclude tonight in John chapter 5, verse 22 there. Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, Jesus' words there kind of, in a sense, summarize a lot of what we have talked about over the course of the day. We have to show honor where honor is due. And if we're going to honor Christ, we have to follow his instructions. This evening, if you're here and you recognize a deficiency in relation to your walk with God, whether you are a Christian and you've wandered astray or you've never put on Christ in baptism, like we talked about this morning in Galatians 3, we notice there at the end of that chapter how that we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for as many of us Paul writes there to the Galatian saints, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so there's no longer slave or free, male or female, Greek or Jew, and so on and so forth. We're all one in Christ. We're all heirs of that promise that was originally made to Abraham all those years ago. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We can have eternal life through the Son of God and through his blood. If you have a need this evening, uh, please let those things be known. Come up to the front now as we stand together and as we sing the song that our brothers chose.